In the summer of 2000, Jesus changed the course of my life forever. Back in the summer of 2000, I was in Honolulu, Hawaii with Corey. The Coast Guard had sent me and a team of a couple other people uh, to Honolulu from California to train a couple of different ships' crews on how to use an oil spill collection boom. Yay, it was my job. And uh, it, I'd never been to Hawaii, so uh, I took Corey with me and I took leave on the back end of that trip, so we stayed a little extra time there. At the time, I had been in the Coast Guard for six years, but that whole year, year number six, was a distraction. I was distracted all the time. I had been leading a Bible study at my home church in California, and I would go to work, and I'd be doing all of these things, and I would constantly be thinking about the people in my Bible study, uh, the guy who was going through a work transition and, and needed prayer, uh, one of the marriages that was going through a hard time, another lady was expecting but had some complications, and it was just consuming me like these thoughts and prayers for, for people. I remember a time when I was in downtown Oakland working with very dangerous chemicals. Collins can attest to a, a plating shop that had been abandoned, hydrofluoric acid and hydrochloric acid and arsenic and other crazy things that if you mix together aren't good. And I'm fogging up the mask of my breathing apparatus because I'm just singing songs of praise all the time. Something was going on in my life. The elders at our church kept on suggesting, are you sure God may not have a call on your life for full time? ministry. In July of 2000, I was on our hotel balcony with my journal open, just kind of deep in prayer, and with all of those longings in my heart and the voices of those elders and different people in my life, I asked, God, do you really want me to quit my job and to, I don't know what, what does it even look like for someone without even a degree at the time to go into ministry? Do you really want me to do that? Because I will be the most dedicated lay guy. I will stay in my job and just be a good guy. I don't really want to leave, Jesus. And Jesus spoke. He spoke without speaking. If he's spoken to you, you know what I mean. Yeah, he called me. And Corey and I walked for hours that day. Did I really hear him? And she pointed out all the different ways that God had been speaking to me for the last year anyway, through the elders and through scriptures and through my church and through her affirmation. We talked about the pros and the cons and we counted the cost. It was a tough decision. At the time, Corey was a full-time student, so she wasn't making any money. And we were living in Marin County at the height of the tech bubble, which meant that just everything was expensive. I'd be giving up a steady paycheck, health care, status, familiarity, a social circle. I liked my job. I was promoting quickly. We could tally up on a piece of paper all the things that we were going to lose. But God had never let us down. And Corey said, I remember we're walking, she says, it may never work out, but if Jesus is calling us to this, we'd be fools not to trust him, at least for the next step. Wise words. So I got home, I put in my notice, I told them in a few months when my enlistment was coming up, I was done. I made a decision. And the word decision has in it this root word, incision, it means to cut, to separate. When you make a decision, you inherently cut off a whole bunch of other options. Maybe that's why our culture is so indecisive. That's another sermon.
In making that decision, I cut off other options. I cut off the life I thought I was going to have. There's a loss, there's sadness, relationships change. Basically, everything changes when you make a big decision. Now, I share that partly, um, partly just to share a little bit about my story, a little bit about my life, but mostly because it's an illustration, uh, uh, maybe a weak illustration, of an example of making a decision. And we're going to need to be thinking about decision-making when we come to tonight's passage in Matthew chapter 10, because we are going to be called to decide. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 10, verses 32 to 42. Um, I want to encourage you, if you're comfortable, close your eyes and just, this might be a semi-familiar passage to you, but let it hit you because this is a hard-hitting passage. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before people, before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of the prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Lord Jesus, these words that you've given to us are in... What we know is the Gospel of Matthew. That means the good news of Matthew. And we know that you came proclaiming good news. We're going to need your help this evening, Holy Spirit, to see how these words are good news. I pray for open hearts and minds. And I pray for courage, Lord, for all of us to act as you lead us. Amen. You may be seated. So before we dig into these uh, admittedly difficult words, right? I came to bring a sword, not peace. I mean, this is, this is weird stuff. This is hardcore. Before we dig into that, let me just remind us of where we're at in the larger picture. Jesus had been doing these mighty words and deeds. The disciples, you know, they're following around, seeing Jesus do awesome stuff. I mean, think about this. If you were one of 12 people on the face of the earth who got to watch Jesus raise a little girl from the dead or you know, heal leper by touching them or do all these amazing things, calm a storm with, the, with this voice, I mean, pretty impressive stuff. Then Jesus turns and tells you, I'm sending you out with my authority to do all this cool stuff. Yes! And why does he do it? 
in chapter 9, verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Beseech or pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. So Jesus is motivated by this heart of compassion. He then turns to his twelve say, I deputize you with my authority to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. So this is good news. Then Jesus says, by the way, it's not going to be easy because I'm sending you out as sheep, which are dumb defenseless animals, and I'm sending you purposefully into the wolves. And you're not to fight like a wolf. You're not to punch back. You're not to fight the, with the world's tactics, okay? I want you to go in gentle. And you're going to be persecuted. You will all be hated in my name. Or because of my name. That's what Jesus tells his disciples. Like, dang, I don't know if I want to do this. Then last week we looked at the passage in, in the middle of chapter 10 where Jesus says, Do not fear. You know, when it comes down to it, all people can do is make fun of you or kill you. But the Father who sent me, and when you do His work, you're working for Him. He has your eternal mind, body, spirit, everything in His hands. And you are safe with Him, so do not fear. In fact, when you go into the synagogues and when you're, when you're drugged into court to defend yourself for proclaiming my name, I will be there with you. And the Spirit will give you speech. So that's the background before we get to this hard text. Now, we have to remember two things. First of all, just what I said. Jesus called His disciples to proclaim good news. Say good news with me. Good news. And so this is good news. Remember as we go through all this hard stuff. This is good news. This is good news, right? This is good news. Okay. The good news is that Jesus is King. He's Savior of the world. And His kingdom is breaking in. And he's calling his disciples, you guys and ladies get to share this good news. And you know what that good news is? Is that you can join the kingdom. I know it sounds shocking, but in that world, if you didn't have the right blood, if you didn't have the right heritage, you could not participate in the people of God. And so Jesus is saying, he's sending them out to proclaim this good news. And remember in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, not the self-righteous know-it-alls. Blessed are the meek, not the powerful. Blessed are those who mourn for the brokenness of our world, not those who, who cover everything up with just a pursuit of happiness. Blessed are the, the little ones. That means you are included. You're qualified because you're not qualified. And so am I. That's good news. We have to remember that. The second thing we have to remember is that because the world, for a large part, will reject this good news, Jesus is saying these words to encourage us, to encourage his disciples. Okay, are you ready? Here we go. Back in chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, Jesus tells his disciples, beware of people. They're going to arrest you. They're going to bring you into court. They're going to have you beaten. It's a court scene. And now he draws on that court scene language again. Right on the heels of his, of his teaching not to fear, Jesus says, if you confess me, if you side with me, if you stand up for me before people, when 
you imagine a court scene and there's all these people who don't like God and there's God the Father who has your eternal destiny in His hand. If you stand with Jesus before people, I will advocate for you before the Father. Okay? So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But if you deny me, like... You just admire me from a distance, but every time there's some kind of confrontation, you're like, I don't, I'm not really with Jesus. Uh, if you deny me in your life, in that day, on the day of judgment, I will deny you before the Father. Why such black and white terms? This is Bellingham. I guess it wasn't written in Bellingham, can you tell? Can't we do both? Like, can't we, can't we live for Jesus, like, all out with subdued excitement and, then, and be liked by everyone at the same time? Oh, that's the cry of my heart. Uh, now, we may not stand in court on a regular basis, and you may never be dragged into a court because of your discipleship to Jesus, at least in this culture. But we have opportunities to stand with Jesus, to stand for Jesus every day of our lives. Being a, a disciple of Jesus is not a private philosophy. Jesus is not a dead guy in a book like many other religious leaders who people just like and so they try and emulate. That's not what Christianity is about. Maybe you didn't know that. It's not about just following a dead guy and his teachings. We are called to follow and to worship the risen, the living, the reigning Jesus. And that means making some decisions. If I decide to, to be Jesus' disciple, it means living and speaking, doing my life as though Jesus were king over my life. And that's going to have implications about how maybe I spend my money. It's going to have something to say about how I parent my children, about how I interact with other people. Confessing Jesus before me, um, men means something for how I live in this world sexually, for how I live in this world economically. It will mean generosity instead of hoarding. It's going to mean charity instead of greed. It's going to mean reconciliation, like actively pursuing reconciliation with other types of people. Rather than segregating into my own little subgroup where it's nice and comfortable. Now we learned last week that what is said in the darkness, Jesus said, that means on the down low or in secret. What's done behind the scenes when you think nobody's looking will be brought out in the light on that day when he returns. So everything that we think, oh nobody saw that, or nobody knows I think that, or nobody knows my heart, it all will be brought out in the light eventually. And Jesus says, do not fear. On that day, if you've stood up for me, I'll stand up for you before the Father. And when, I'm going to say some things now, and I'm, I'm included in this. Maybe I'll use we. I haven't written you. We have sinned. We are guilty before God. I don't know if that's a news flash, but maybe you had a really good week. It wasn't that good. We have sinned. We're guilty before God. But Jesus is saying, I am your advocate, your atonement for your sin. No one else can say that. And frankly, no one else has said that. That's Jesus' role. But don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
react. What? It's okay. I, we, we went through this in my, uh, my Bible study on Wednesday night, and we were all like, what the heck? I mean, Carol, where's Carol? I mean, there's like great, great comments there. Uh, is this the same Jesus who just like five chapters ago on the Sermon on the Mount talked about, hey, if you have something against your brother and you're going to present your offering to God, don't present your offering to God. I'd rather you go reconcile with your brother first and then come. Is that the same Jesus that, that said that? Or is that the same Jesus of whom the angels sung? Glory to God in the highest and what on earth? Peace on earth and goodwill towards men with whom he is pleased. Is this the same guy? Um, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, these soldiers come. Peter stands up for Jesus, doesn't he? With his sword, chops off uh, the slave's right, right ear who's trying to attack Jesus. Jesus, put that thing away, man. That's kind of a paraphrase. But he says... If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Is it the same Jesus, Prince of Peace, that's saying now that I didn't come to bring peace but a sword? What is going on? All right. This is going to be fun. So there's a few Greek words for sword. The most common in the New Testament are ramphaya. Say ramphaya. Ramphaya. You just said Greek word for sword. And makaira. Makaira. Yes, yes, we've got two Greek words down. Uh, Ramphaya is rarer. It describes a longer sword with two edges, kind of a slashing movement. All right, think broadsword, think Braveheart-esque sword, not quite that heavy. That's a Ramphaya, quite rare. Uh, more common in the Roman world is the Machaira. Um, that's the sword that we would know as maybe the gladius. If you're a nerd like me, you know what a gladius is. It's about a two feet long. A gladiator comes out of that word. And uh, two feet long, straight, pointy edge. Yes, it has sharp edges, but mostly you're with the wall of your comrades with shields and the gladius is just made to pierce so you get in close range that's the makaira i did not come to bring peace on earth but i came to bring a makaira okay makaira has another connotation this is where it got really interesting this week in my study i was like giddy nerd it nerd out but it's associated also with carving meat and in particular Carving or dividing the sinews for sacrifices. Jesus, then, truly is the Prince of Peace, but His message of peace will divide people like a Machaira divides flesh. Peace. Jesus came and died and rose to bring peace to the world, but His message divides. Peace is not just my definition of peace or your definition of peace. Uh, we are, I mean, just admittedly so individualistic in our culture. When I think of peace, I just close my eyes and I don't get super spiritual about it. Somebody's watching our kids. We're skiing. Yeah. Or, I don't know, it's a toss-up. Depends on what time of year. Or we're on a beach somewhere. Tropical. Got to be tropical. I got to be able to want to be in the ocean. Uh, and it's got to be warm enough. My tie or something involved. So those are my definitions of peace. But those definitions are so personal, so individualistic. And either one of those definitions inherently means that I might be at peace, but somebody else is not. Why? Because somebody's watching my kids, and as lovely as they are, is not peaceful. And somebody's running the lift for me, or mi mixing my drink, or getting my towel. You know what I'm saying? So if I'm at peace in my personal definition, not everyone else can be at peace. 
But Jesus didn't come and die to bring Chris' peace on earth to Chris. And, and I'm sorry to share this, but he didn't do it for your pipe dream of peace either. All right. When Jesus is talking about peace, he's talking about this Hebrew word shalom. The Hebrew image of peace given by God. Shalom is a communal word, has connotations of wholeness. And yes, while it might refer to some lack of violence, but it also means being actively, hear that, actively engaged in loving your neighbor. Actively working to ensure that not only do I have what I need, but so does my neighbor. Shalom is all-encompassing. It has to do with right relatedness. Right relatedness between me and you and God. Right relatedness between human beings. Right relatedness between human beings and this creation, this globe that we get to be on. And frankly, right relatedness between me and me. Like, I don't know if you, any, of you, any of you struggle with uh, confidence or self-worth or any of those voices going on in your head. I mean, shalom covers that as well. It's all-encompassing. And when that kind of peace comes, think about that, the implications. If that kind of peace comes, it will be in opposition to the structures in our world that thrive on division, the structures in our world that only operate on power differential where someone is higher than another in pecking order. Those, those structures, while useful sometimes even, it, it almost seems like mandatory in this broken world we live in, Shalom has no room for those anymore. That will bring conflict. And that brings us to the, I mean, just audacious call of Jesus. He's so exclusive. I don't know if you get, I mean, it's offensive really what he's saying. Jesus is not one option out of many. Took the kids to Mallard last night. So many good flavors, right? And, you know, four of us out of five that can eat ice cream, some Mars is sitting there trying to get it. Um, four different flavors because we like different stuff. Um, and sometimes people view religion as, you know, the, the menu at Mallard. I'll take that one with maybe an indecision, you know, go Baha'i and, uh, you know, just kind of mix it all in or whatever. But Jesus isn't a flavor on the menu of Mallard ice cream. I mean, he's not saying, well, you could pick me. I'm a pretty good option. He's like, I'm it. I, I'm like, you decide with me or, or, or don't. Um, he's not saying I'm for some people but not for others. Jesus actually makes the audacious claim that his good news is only good news if you decide with him. Above all other allegiances. So to make his point, just make sure he settles this one. He chooses an illustration. And he uses as an illustration an institution that in the first century Mediterranean world was the prime example. Like if you look up, if you were to look up um, loyalty and allegiance in the dictionary in the first century Mediterranean world, family would be the word. Nothing was stronger than family. Jesus didn't come to break up the family. But he warned that proclaiming his message would be so divisive, it would, in some cases, inevitably split the family. 
Think about just a few verses earlier from a couple weeks back. Uh, chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. Brother will betray brother to death. I kind of didn't talk about that a couple weeks back because I knew I was coming to this here. Do you, that... What? That does not happen in this world, in this culture. Brother betraying brother, that's death sentence kind of stuff. A father will betray his child. Children will rise up against their parents. Uh Uh-uh, that doesn't happen there. It doesn't happen in that world. And will cause the parents to be put to death. And just so that this wouldn't come as a shock or a surprise to his audience, Jesus kind of quotes this scripture um, that's deep within Israel's tradition. So he's talking in 1st century AD. He chooses something 800 years old. 722 BC. Micah 7.6 speaks of a time uh, in, in that 8th century BC where King Ahaz and the people of Israel had turned... From God. Their sins included murder and bribery and injustice. And what's described as best friends betraying one another and even family members betraying one another. And Jesus uses this illusion or example, not to say, hey, look, I'm fulfilling this, but he's saying, you know that part of your national history that's, you know, one of your sacred scriptures, one of our sacred scriptures? Yeah, it's going to be like that when you proclaim my message. In fact, the one who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And don't, don't go blah, blah, that's his Bible talk. Like, can you, if you have a mother or father living, or you have children, do you hear what he just said? He didn't say you can't love them. He says you can't love them more than me. Now, the more research that is done into family systems, it becomes clear that families, the family unit is more like an organism than it is a collection of individuals. So if something happens to one person in a family, the whole family is affected. If mom and dad are stressed out, I don't know, finances or something like that, and, and they may not even tell the kids... It, it, it comes out. Like kids pick up on that stuff and they may act out. Or, or if Junior gets into drugs, everybody in the family will have changes in their behavior and the way they relate. It's just systemic. And the reverse is true as well. So when somebody in a broken family gets healthy, everybody changes. So here's, a, here's an example. Family of four. Mom is an alcoholic. So dad spends most of his time and energy when he's not at work covering up for mom and making sure that everybody else is okay. 14-year-old John gets involved in every after-school activity he can imagine just to kind of get away from the dysfunction. And 12-year-old Mary starts smoking and shoplifting just to get some of dad's attention because mom sucks it all up and he doesn't even realize it. Now what happens when mom gets sober? Dad doesn't even know how to function anymore. He's been the enabler. He's been the responsible one. And now, well, now mom's taking responsibility for her life. What do I do? John now can be home. He doesn't have to be gone so much. But he realizes when he comes home, I don't even know these people. I don't know how to function here. And finally, now there's more energy to to give to Mary. And they start calling her on the carpet for her behavior. And she has all this resentment pain that has to be dealt with. You see how the family is a system. One person changes 
And everybody is affected. Now what if for generations and centuries you and your family and your people had worshipped in a certain way? Maybe from a Jewish perspective you'd worshipped Yahweh and the temple was the place you did that and through sacrifice. Or maybe later on as, as pagan cultures were reading this, you had your pantheon, you had your house gods, you prayed to this god for the weather and that god for fertility and that god for healing and, and then all of a sudden dad comes home I'm a follower of Jesus! Or big brother comes home, I'm following Jesus now. Would absolutely turn the family upside down. You can't just do things the way you used to do anymore. And the temptation for us, who are followers of Jesus, with our families or circles of friends, is to do one of two things. Either minimize Jesus so that you don't have to make ripples, right? Just kind of downplay it. Or, what I've seen, is people become militant for Jesus and they alienate their family. Constantly judging, constantly nagging. No surprise, but Jesus doesn't call us to either. He calls us to a middle way. We are to go in gentle like a sheep and yet bold and not afraid. Think about this. Jesus himself, his behavior, his teaching, divided his family for a time. He was teaching this one time at a house, a bunch of people there, and somebody says, Hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. And the Greek literally says they came to take custody of him. They thought Jesus was off his rocker. They're coming to take him home. This kid's embarrassing us. Let's do what families do. We'll take him in. Jesus comes out. I mean, you know he loved his mother and his brother. And I mean, you see this later on in the scripture. But he says, you know, who, who are my, my mother and my brother? And my sisters, you know who it is? Those who obey my Father. Those who obey my Father. Jesus wasn't throwing out his family. See what he's doing is he's redefining it. On the one hand, he's, he's redefining it so that family roots now go deeper. How, how many of you got to choose your family? It just kind of happens, doesn't it? And uh, there's some DNA stuff involved and other things. We don't, you know. but, uh, so you just don't get to choose it. And, and it, you don't really have to be that... It doesn't take that much to be part of your family, right? But Jesus is saying that to be in this family is, is to obey God my Father. And that's a deeper root than just, I haphazardly was born into my family. At the same time that his roots are going deeper, he's broadening the family. Because in my family, see, there's Corey and me. And I've got three kids. That's my immediate family, right? That's it. But Jesus is saying, no longer does DNA or blood or even culture or race define this family. Everyone. So he's saying it's deeper because you have to obey the Father to be in the family. But it's broader because whoever obeys the Father is part of this family. Deep and wide. Okay, so, awesome. Jesus is redefining the family. And maybe, maybe you can relate to this in some sense in your own life. Maybe the exclusivity of Jesus has caused tension in your family. You may have a parent or a sibling who doesn't believe uh, the lordship, the reign of Jesus like you do. So how do you navigate those relational waters? I mean, what do you do? Well, one thing I would encourage you on, and I... I just say this because Jesus does, is don't fear. Don't fear. Don't wilt. Um, putting Jesus first and loving your family 
are not mutually exclusive. All right? Let me say that a different way. Just because you put Jesus first doesn't mean you have to stop loving your family. There's a difference between honoring your father and mother and letting them control your life. Right? There's a difference between loving and nurturing your children and letting them control your agenda. Those are different things. You can still put Jesus first and love and honor your family. And I would argue that the most loving thing you could do for your family or in your circle of friends is to live for Jesus with gusto. Don't hold back. Go for it. But you know what that looks like? Be ridiculously generous and forgiving. That's what following Jesus might look like. Be committed, but yet hold your boundaries firmly. You know? Take your commitments to Jesus and His community firmly. When family systems come into moral conflict or political conflict or conflict of priorities and you choose for Jesus and His people, you're being a person of integrity and honor. Now, I think that Jesus, as I said earlier, chose this example of the family because in His day it was the most solid Example of loyalty and, and um, allegiance that you could think of. But for many uh, today, family is less and less important. And for some in the millennial generation, so they say, uh, the tribe becomes maybe more important than the family. First of all, we're a more mobile culture. Uh, some of us don't even live within uh, uh, thousands of miles of our family. So the tribe or the maybe the work friends or the people who um, like to do the same activities become our surrogate family. For others, career or the pursuit of happiness is the most important thing in life. So, just so there's no mistaking and this family thing didn't hit it for you, Jesus says, He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, the person who does not actually receive their instrument of death to all things that you used to put before Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. If you think you've found your life, your soul, if you think you've found wholeness in anything but me, in family, in friends, in nature, in career, in wealth, in travel, in knowledge, in accomplishments, if you think you've found your soul or your life in religion without Jesus, in discipline, in athletics, in knowledge of the Bible, in community service, if you think you've found your life in anything but Jesus, You'll lose it. And dang, I wish sometimes I didn't know Greek, but the word for loose, azapolesas, which happens to mean you will, in the pursuit of those alternate sources of life, you will destroy your life. It will rot. You'll miss out. Jesus taught this wonderful sermon in Matthew 5-7 through at the end. The person who hears these words of mine, these teachings, and acts on them, it'll be like building his house on a rock. You know, the rains fall, the winds blow, the floods came, you know, and it slammed against the house, and it didn't fall. It was built on the rock, Jesus, the rock. But he says, those who hear these words of mine and don't act on them, you know, you start pursuing these other avenues to your, your happiness or your fulfillment. It's like building your house on the sand, and the rains fall, and the floods rise and the winds blow and slammed against the house. And Jesus says, 
and it fell, and great was its fall. That's the, the warning here. Okay, so that's heavy. <laughs> Jesus concludes this argument with two amazing gospel realities. One, if you show hospitality, financial support, housing, food, water, nurture, if you show love to someone because they are a disciple of Jesus, check this out, if you do that for a disciple of Jesus, it is the same thing as doing it to Jesus. Isn't that great? So if you show even a cup of water to one of these little ones, I mean, that's a bigger deal in an arid culture, but you know what I mean? If you, just, you may not have that much. But when you reach out and you show kindness and love and support and prayer to, to a disciple of Jesus, you do the same thing to Jesus. So, so we've got Bethany Eibling's going to Egypt. Not everyone here can go to Egypt and do this amazing life-altering thing. But when you help support her or pray for her, you are doing, you're part of her mission and you're, you're doing it to Jesus. That's amazing in itself. But there's more. Of course there's more. Jesus actually teaches that when people receive Him... They receive the one who sent him. So when you do something for a disciple, it's like doing it for Jesus, which is like doing it to God the Father. And here's the crux of the issue. And I quote Dale Bruner. Jesus' self-consciousness is distracting. So you know how Jesus is being so exclusive here? Notice what he's doing. If you, if you follow me... It's the same as following God. Who does he think he is, right? So his self-consciousness is distracting. Who does he think he is? He comes crashing into history and into our lives and takes over, preempting our most instinctive loyalties, family, friends, presuming upon our deepest affections, usurping our natural ties, and asking and claiming to be the most important person in our lives. We would not tolerate this presumption from anyone else. But Bruner continues, Somehow, it's appropriate with Jesus. We sense that His claim on us restores us to the primal family. So Jesus leaves us with a decision. Jesus, first one is, Jesus was crazy. And we should close the church and do something else with our lives on a beautiful day like today. That's option one. Two, Jesus was plain evil and manipulative. And we should close the church and actually form another group that fights the disciples of Jesus. Because they're evil and crazy if they're deluded into this stuff as well. I mean, that's when you think about what Jesus is saying... It's either crazy or evil, or Jesus is who he says he is, creator, savior, king, and we owe him our love, our worship, our trust, our obedience. If he is who he says he is, then, then you and I, we have nothing to fear when we trust him. Our sins are forgiven, our eternal life is in his hands. So I, count the cost. Do a cost-benefit analysis, if you like. Making a decision requires an incision, right? So you count the cost for real. Because if you decide for Jesus, it means deciding not to do a bunch of other things. 
The cost of cutting away of selfishness is the cost of following Jesus, but the benefit is full life, meaningful life, eternal life. I'll leave you with that um, as we transition now to our prayers for healing.